Hello, I'm Devin Moore. I'm a Humanity Rising Ambassador and the founder of Hashtag Rape to Speak Up, an anti-bullying organization. Humanity Rising is a student-led movement to create a better world through service. We help students find their service passion and give them a voice to help them share what they are doing to make a positive difference in the world. Welcome to our Humanity Rising Voices podcast series, Creating World Peace Through Unity, hosted by Steve Sarowitz. We are really excited to have you guys here today. Joining Steve is Dr. Bob Henderson. Dr. Bob Henderson is Principal Consultant for the Henderson Consulting Group specializing in the development of high-performance organizations. He also is a lifelong member of the Baha'i Faith. There will be time for Q&A, and now I'll turn it over to Steve to begin. It's a pleasure, as always, uh, seeing you, Bob. Uh, it's been a little while, so that's great. I think we should probably start off by maybe you telling us a little bit about the kind of work you've done throughout your career. And then I'd love to talk about the kind of things that are going on in the world. You just mentioned that the, the projects that are going on to create unity and maybe how they apply to all the things we're seeing in the news. Maybe you can talk about your background. First of all, uh, Steve, I love your shirt. <laughs> I've got to get one of these B-Love shirts. And if ever there was an, a message that was appropriate for the moment, that's exactly the right message. If I send you a shirt, can I send you a mask as well? Oh, absolutely. I'll wear it. Okay, done. All right. So uh, you asked me about my background. I, I was telling Devin that I was born in uh, South Central Los Angeles. It's the largest ghetto in the continental United States. And uh, I came up in a kind of split reality because I was born into a Baha'i family. So on one hand, my day-to-day -day life was 100% black people as far as you could ride a bike or drive a car. But on Sundays, I would go to Baha'i Sunday School, and it would be every kind of people you can imagine. And so as a little kid, you try to make sense out of this. You live in a poor black neighborhood. That's, that's your reality. You go to a school that is kind of casually committed to your development as a human being and as a student. And the way that I figured this out when I was probably five or six was that the world I lived in, the block I lived in, was kind of the world as it is. It's segregated, it's harsh, it's sometimes violent. There are all kinds of heartbreaking situations that surround you. And the place that I went to Sunday school, where there were all colors of people, all cultures of people, all races of people, and they all seemed to really like me. Now, I didn't know all the places that they were from, but they seemed to be really nice to me. And so from my standpoint, I thought, I live in a place where it's the world as it is. But on Sundays, I go to a place where it's the world as it's gonna be. And uh, that was kind of my orientation uh, through life. But I've been, I, as uh, Devin mentioned, I have a consulting firm. Uh, we work with very big companies. And what we do is, we create high-performance organizations. And for us, that means three things. That means that you have to have a learning culture where knowledge is growing in every function with every uh, individual, because we believe that anybody who has influence on anybody else is a leader, which is really important for kids, because you may not have a badge or a symbol of authority, but because you have influence on someone else, you exert leadership influence. That's the first thing. We want to create a learning culture. 
The second thing is we want to unify the diversity of the organization because diverse organizations are smarter, they are better at problem solving, and the harder the problem, the better they do. They're better at innovation, and all of this is quantifiably measurable. The third thing we want to do is we want to increase trust. And if you can do those three things, you can get some amazing outcomes. The first outcome you can get is you can have a high-spirited, high-morale company. And the other is that a place that is fun to work and a, a place where you feel like you've got a mission of service. And the other is you can make money. And that means good things for the families. So these are companies like American Express, General Electric, uh, Wegmans Food Markets, uh, huge hospital uh, corporations, the space shuttle, name it, professional baseball teams, <laughs> just all kinds of things. But the other thing and, the thing, and one of the things that I'd like to talk about a little bit tonight is some of the international development work uh, that we've done, especially the work that we've done in Africa which is literally changing the planet and changing conditions of life for hundreds of millions of people. That's very interesting. I was just in a conversation actually right before this, and one of the comments was, well, the, the tone was kind of like the world is falling apart. People don't necessarily see positives as much. Well, it'd be great if we could get there, but it's getting worse, not better. I'd love to hear a positive because we don't really get that in the news. We only see the negative. So tell me about the wonderful things in Africa. Well, let's start with the point you just made. Most people believe that the world is falling apart. Most people believe that the world is beset with extreme poverty, that there's international migration because of homelessness, that climate change is wrecking the planet, and that uh, violence is out of control virtually everywhere we all believe that is that that's what's in the news that's what's on tv that's what we see and it's what we've come to understand about our reality but, but the truth is actually the opposite if i were to ask you what percentage of people in the world live in extreme poverty average person would say about 80 percent and and the truth of the matter is steve when you were born that was true it was about 80% of the world's population lived in extreme poverty. Today, it's 9%. And most of the world's population, 74%, are living somewhere in the middle. What that means is infant mortality has dropped 75%, principally because of the education of mothers, and the fact that 90% of the world's population of kids is vaccinated. Women are having babies later because the average level of education among women globally or in the developing world is now ninth grade. With ninth grade, it's shocking. We think of people in villages and people under hardship circumstances, and we think, well, gee, these folks um, aren't getting educated, they're, they're not getting the assistance they need to, quite the opposite. Uh, the truth of the matter is, in developing countries, the average level of education is ninth grade, 
It means that women are having children later in life. It means that they are not only physically more able, but they are financially more able to provide for those kids. That's amazing. That's it an amazing, amazing statistic. I, I did not know that. And going back to women, because that's interesting to me as a Baha'i, one of the things that the Baha'i faith teaches is the absolute equality of women. And that if women aren't able to have the full rights of men, that the whole world suffers. I'm talking about the world as a, a bird with two wings, one, one male and one female, unless both wings are equal, that bird can't fly. So I think what you're saying is really that, correct? That if we educate women, we solve a lot of problems. Just amazing transformation. If you take Africa specifically, where the differences culturally and historically between men and women are extreme. And suddenly you have systems where women are being systematically educated up to the ninth, 10th, 11th grade level, or even into college, where you have new education systems in villages. I worked on a project with the president of Tanzania to build 5,000 schools in Tanzania. It was a 10-year project, and the people got so excited about the project, that is the Tanzanian people, that the 5,000 schools were built in three years. And wow. the problem that they were confronted with, uh, because he wanted 100% of Tanzanian kids in school. So all of wow. a sudden, the problem is not that you don't have schools, but you don't have enough teachers to to populate them. Uh, so what we did was we connected those rural schools in villages to a broadband fiber optic cable system. And we broadcast the state curriculum to the remote villages so that kids in the villages would have a systematic education from preschool through high school. Well, just imagine what that does. For example, one of the things that happens is that you can call a mobile phone on this connection and get a doctor on the other side or a, a, a physician's assistant who can help you with anything from a broken leg to a birth or a snake bite or um, a fever or what have you and keep people well and safe until medical attention can get there. So these are revolutionary changes that have led to the purification of water, that have led to the sanitation of uh, refuge areas, that have led to the mobilization of women in, in every aspect of social life. I mean, I'll, I'll give you a story. In Africa, one of the big problems is that many of the men would go off to the cities in order to make money and send it home. But the cities would swallow them up and in many cases, and sometimes the money made it home, sometimes it didn't. In the meantime, the women were at home sharecropping or working little plots of land of their own. As the education developed, a small group of women organized a revenue sharing system where they would pool a little bit of their money. They rented a truck and bought a mobile phone 
so that they could call the markets and preview what prices they would get for their crops. And they could take all their crops in a truck. Well, that truck turned into from renting to owning and from one to a network and from their farms to everybody's farm in the region. Suddenly, these women are buying land, they're buying cows, they're buying bicycles, they're buying trucks, they're purifying water. And the other thing that they're doing is they are hiring nurses and teachers to come and educate their children in the villages. Well, it doesn't take but a decade for that to have a transformational effect on everything. People are healthier, they're smarter, they're more prosperous, they're taking holidays. <laughs> yeah, it's just a complete transformation of life. So let me get back to the main point. We think the world is poor, but the truth of the matter is that we have done such a good job, that by we, I mean the entire world has done such a good job that now, Infant mortality is down 75%. Education of women in the developing world is average ninth grade. About 74% of the world's population is living in the middle. Now that's not middle class, to be sure. There's still lots of struggle in life and so forth. But they are living a sustainable life and have moved significantly out of extreme poverty into somewhere in that middle zone from, from lower to upper. And then of course you have the developed world, All right? That was number one. The second thing we think is that violence is out of control. The fact is that everything, every bit of data we have says that not only is violence lower, but it's the lowest it's ever been in the history of existence on this planet. There was um, a professor or a writer from, he did the research at Harvard. Right, Harvard. Steven Pinker. Yes, and I've read, I've, I've looked over his statistics and quoted them quite a bit. I'm trying to think of his name. Well, but, everything, that, and what he says is that everything we're doing is working. UN Declaration of, Univ of, of Human Rights works. Education works, purifying water works, the organization of civil institutions like libraries and hospitals and schools and neighborhoods, all that stuff works. And the result is, I mean, the easiest way to think about this is that we measure violence by the number of violent deaths per 100,000. In World War II, it was 700 violent deaths per 100,000. Now it's 0.03 in the United States. Wow. So every time there's a violent death, it becomes a, a big thing. It's all we talk about. Well, I think that murder and, and all of the bad news sells, right? Because that's what sells newspapers or sells TV is all the bad things. I'm glad that bad news is still news. When bad news isn't news, we have a problem. Well, I, I tell you, I, I could do with a, a little bit less bad news. Uh, but I, let's take a homegrown example. We're all concerned about immigration. In the United States, it's a big issue. And there are just two points that I'd, I'd make about immigration. The first is, front page of the Wall Street Journal, one of the most conservative business publications in the United States, and they published a summary of immigrant crime in the United States. Sorry, over the last hundred years, 
And it turns out that immigrants are the safest population in the continent of the United States, and not by a little, but by a lot. They don't come here for crime, they come here to work. So here's the story I wanted to tell you. One of the richest communities in uh, California. This place is as close to paradise as anything you can imagine. It's so be beautiful, it's breathtaking. All the houses are incredible. The people have more money than they know what to do with. And their kids go to a school called the Bahia Vista School. Now this is in San Marin County. At the edge of this, of San Rafael, is the beginning of the Imperial Valley farms. And there, there are huge populations of migrant workers from all kinds of different countries. So according to California law, you've got to take the kids in the area. So all these super rich kids are suddenly going to school with kids who speak 27 different languages. Now you can imagine how crazy that was in the school. Nobody could make sense out of that stuff. And, and here you've got kids speaking 27 different languages. The rich parents are saying, wait a minute, our tax dollars shouldn't be paying for these migrant kids to come in here. And the migrant kids are coming in looking for an education and hoping for the benefits of upward mobility, just like everybody else. So I happened to be there because I was on the board of visitors for the Buck Trust, which is a philanthropic foundation that uh, mitigates poverty and uh, uplifts education. And this school had applied for a grant to convert itself as English as a second language. So that was the new mode of instruction. So here I come uh, with the board of visitors about four or five years later, and we're taking a look at where the money went and how it, what, did it have an impact and all that stuff. Well, here's what we found. First of all, by fourth grade, the kids are speaking three languages. By sixth grade, they're speaking four. The, on the California State Achievement Tests, these kids are averaging, the school is averaging in the 90 percentile uh, range in math, in reading, and in uh, uh, science. And, and you can imagine that their social flexibility, their sense of being able to get along with anybody, being able to solve problems, being able to understand where other people are coming from is amazing. But wow. here's, the, here's the other thing that was cool. You go into a classroom and you can't tell who the teacher is because there are adults in there and one of them's the teacher and at least one of them is one of the rich parents and at least one of them is one of the parents from the migrant camps. And they're all working together for the education of their children. This is an incredible development, and it stands against all that we're told about the dangers of immigrants. Well, of course. I'm, so my wife is a first generation. She came from Honduras, one of the poorest countries um, in the world, and, and the murder capital of the world for many years. Yeah. And my, my grandparents were immigrants, and so I'm not very far away from it in my family. Right. What always boggles my mind is people who are one or two generations in, but don't want the next one to come in. You know, <laughs> I don't, I, I really don't understand that, but maybe they understand it better than me. I, I, 
I love the tapestry. I, I love when Abdul Baha says that we're flowers of a garden and the, the garden is so much more beautiful when you see all the different colors, all, all the beautiful images and cultures of the human family, unity and diversity, which is the Baha'i term for it. It's just yeah. so much prettier. Yeah, there, no question. I consulted on a project uh, to build a broadband fiber optic cable, the internet, from Europe down the west coast of Africa to Cape Town, South Africa. And this was before Africa was connected to the World Wide Web. So this was going to bring tremendous change. So we had delegations from 26 countries. Problem was, I wanted it for my country, but I didn't want you to get it for your country. There was an incredible amount of fighting about who got access and what the terms were and this and that and the other. So one day we're at uh, lunch because we would meet for eight days every month trying to figure out how to build the cable, how to manage it, how to pay for it. There were principally Africans who were Christians and Muslims. They would talk about Christian activities and Muslim activities and so forth at these huge lunches where we ate way too much food. And periodically I'd say something about Islam because they think Americans don't know anything about uh, Islam, but as a Baha'i, I know a little bit, but it raised eyebrows. So one day they sent a guy to ask me a, a little bit about, what's your book, man? What do you believe? We, we see something about Islam, something about Christianity. What do you believe? I said, well, I, I, I believe in Baha'u'llah. I'm a member of the Baha'i faith. So he goes back to the lunch table where we, we've got all of these people from 26 countries and so forth. And he announces, Bob is a Baha'i. And suddenly everything stops. And one after another, the, the guys from different nations start telling stories about the Baha'is in their countries. And all the stories are the same. The Baha'is love everybody. They work with everybody. They are the ones who are promoting the education of the kids and the organization of junior youth and youth. They're the ones who promote the rights of women and so on and so forth. And it became one of the sources of agreement and unity among us, which reinforced our capacity to get this project done. And I'm happy to say that it's up and running as we speak. I, I'm in a business group and it was, it's a business forum and we've been together for many years and it was a fight between the Republicans and the group and the Democrats in the group, and the group was about to split up. I think what's beautiful, because you, you don't take sides as a Baha'i, either in religion or politics, you can be the peacemaker, always. And actually, I said this to these two friends who've now stayed together and their friendship held together. One is a Christian, a lifelong Republican, the other is an atheist and a lifelong Democrat. But they love each other. And I actually right. have to remind them that they love each other. Right. They've been friends for years, but yeah. they've forgotten. And I think sometimes you just have to remind people to love each other. I think that people get sidetracked because there's so much emphasis on social advancement and economic development that they forget that the foundation of the challenges we face are moral and spiritual. And we've got plenty of money, we've got plenty of resources, and we know how to solve all kinds of problems. But unless we can create an environment in which people can understand each other and begin to work together, we're going to be hamstrung. I'll give you a really good example going back to Africa. Have you ever heard of the project called the Great Green Wall? Yes, yes. All right, so for those of you out there who don't know, the Great Green Wall is a 30-mile thick wall of trees that goes from the west coast of Africa to the east coast of Africa and is designed to stop the spread of the Sahara Desert. So it's about climate change. 
But in the process, what it's doing is it's taking 23 countries who are really just groups of tribes, they're confederations of tribes, and they're forging them into nations where the people inside the country are, are beginning to understand each other and work together, and the people among the countries are beginning to understand each other and work together. It's creating jobs, it's changing the climate, it's changing water flow, it's changing patterns of economic development, it's changing patterns of social engagement, and it is creating an environment in which people are learning to work together to solve the problems that threaten them all. Well, it has social dimensions and economic dimensions, but fundamentally, it rests on a moral and spiritual agreement to get to know each other, to develop a relationship, to build trust, and to build cooperation so that we can attack the challenges that, that threaten us all. That's wonderful. And it's really going to save the environment. It's everything. It's economic, it's environment, it's social, it's spiritual. That project is, is so many things, isn't all in one. That's exactly right. In fact, in Somalia, where uh, farmers had cut down trees to increase farmland, they were hit with droughts and floods and crop destruction. The answer turned out to be to show them satellite pictures of what the land used to look like and what it looks like now, to replant the trees and to show different ways of growing and harvesting the crops. In 10 years, not only have they replanted the trees, increased crop yields and so forth, but they had reduced flooding and increased climate stability. It doesn't take forever, but it really depends on cooperation and trust. It seems like now there's a crisis here, crisis, especially with the way the climate is changing, crisis here, crisis here, and we hit this when we hit, but, but that doesn't make sense. It makes sense that we worry about unity first, and then we say, okay, what's the biggest problem we have with the globe? Because everything is global now. All, all of our crises are global. And so from a global perspective, what are our top five things? Let's do them globally. The problem is if, we, if, if one person does this, but the other person over there is undoing what you're doing, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think anything works. What's beautiful about this Great Green Wall is it's a very large project and it's affecting these countries and they're working together. Those types of projects will work. But if you just had one country doing it, it might not, right? I can give you an example where a discovery in one place changed an entire system on a global level. The UN Famine Relief Team went to Southeast Asia where there was a famine in Cambodia. A single famine relief worker, a young woman, noticed that while some of the kids were starving and had diarrhea and were obviously dehydrated and, and, and at real risk, there were some other kids that were thriving. And she couldn't explain, how is it possible that we've got this famine and we've got fat kids? <laughs> they're little kids and they're doing great. And what she found was that their mothers had figured out how to harvest high protein and high vitamin and mineral mussels and planting from the riverbed and make them into broths that were very nourishing for their kids. So when she discovered this, she reported it to the base and they immediately transferred that knowledge all over the world, everywhere there was a famine. And one of the things they found was everywhere in the world, there were kids that were starving and there were kids that were thriving. And that the, the and, and this is in the same village, by the way, the same villages uh, all over the world. And what they found was some mothers had found ways to use natural resources as nutritional supplements to protect the, 
biological uh, ability of their kids to, to grow and thrive. And so what they did was they diminished their emphasis on handing out high protein biscuits and started teaching mothers how to use the resources all around them to make uh, broths that would keep their kids healthy and safe. And that, that system transferred within a year. It went from one spot to global within a year. So this is all over the world now. How many children do you think have been saved by this one person's? Oh, countless numbers. Because what, what happened was, just imagine the developmental effects. You go from handing out food, which builds no jobs, it builds no understandings, it builds no cooperation, it builds no uh, sense that we're going to be better off tomorrow than we are today. You go from that to mothers working together and sharing information about how to protect the well-being of their families and their children. And suddenly, you're talking about a sustainable model that is based on understanding and cooperation, which is sustainable well into the future and can be supplemented by additional you know, proteins, supplements, and wafers, nutrition bars, and so forth, but is essentially based on the resources that they have readily available in their immediate vicinity. How much better as a long-term solution is that than creating a dependency model? I'm thinking of uh, something our mutual friend, Rain Wilson, Mm -hmm. um, talked about in Haiti, where they sent t-shirts to Haiti. All these well-meaning philanthropists sent these beautiful t-shirts to Haiti. And it was so wonderful, except they wiped out Haiti's garment industry, the whole garment industry. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Gone. So what they did is it actually had a negative effect because now they had a t-shirt, but they didn't have a job. Right. And this is really actually one of the keys that you've been talking about, but I want to really call it out. And that is the solutions have to come in conjunction with the community. It's absolutely necessary that as a philanthropist, when you're trying to help the world, that the communities have to have part in their own solutions. And maybe you can talk it's, about it. It's as old as the, as the Bible story that you can give a person a fish and he'll eat for a day, or you can teach him how to fish and he can eat for the rest of his life. Yeah. You know, we are at a time where knowledge is king. And if you have information, you can solve all kinds of problems and you can change your circumstances quickly without having to rely on the gifts of others over the long term. I wanted to flip it over to the United States. What we're seeing in the news is a lot. How do we get through this fighting that we see? I I look at Kenosha, Wisconsin as almost the poster child for what's to do wrong in this fight. There are two realities that we've got to pay attention to. The, The first is, it is true that there is race and ethnic bias in the justice system. I I consulted to the California State Supreme Court, which is the largest single court system in in the United States, short of the the, uh, federal court. I consulted with them to establish a commission on race and ethnic bias in the justice system. The commission rested on six studies that were done that said, look, the darker you are, whether you're African-American, Latino, East Indian, American Indian, uh, Italian, whatever, the darker your skin is, the more you're subject to race and ethnic bias in the justice system. You're going to be arrested quicker, you're going to be hit harder, and, and so forth. These studies were done in six states in the United States, and the results were so consistent 
they stopped doing the studies because they weren't learning anything new. It was the same wherever you went from East Coast to West Coast. Here's the thing that we haven't studied. We haven't looked at the other side where uh, people are working on community-based solutions to building understanding and cooperation in neighborhoods that are mitigating violence significantly, that are building cooperative relationships among multiracial neighbors, and that are transforming conditions, social conditions, economic conditions, conditions of safety and mitigating violence, and so forth. Those uh, examples are literally all over the United States. It's two realities that we have to come to grips with. Uh, one is that we've got a problem. And the problem is that dark-skinned people are subject to race and ethnic bias in the justice system. Every week, uh, it seems that somebody does the same thing that uh, was done before. In none of these cases are these, uh, are these folks armed. They pose no risk to anyone. On the other hand, you have a situation where you remember the gunman, Dylan Roof, the yeah. young white man who went to a Bible study and shot nine people. Yes. And but here's a guy who has committed nine murders in a church at a Bible study. He's arrested safely. No additional gunplay is done. And on the way to jail, he says he's hungry. So the police stop and get him a burger and fries at the burger. I mean, so these kinds of disparities are real and they've, they've got to be paid attention to. But on the other hand, we've got to pay a lot of attention to those neighborhood and institutionally based efforts that are showing a transformational effect in race unity and interracial understanding and interracial cooperation and in the improvement of social and economic conditions in neighborhoods throughout the United States. And about that, most people don't know a single thing. Well, I'm, I'm working on that personally. I've, um, this year, I put aside a million dollars for Baha'i giving. And uh, it was my first time, because we have a family foundation and we give personally, but I wanted to do something specifically Baha'i. And actually that is the focus of my Baha'i giving. Most of my giving, has something to do with race. That's the single biggest area I'm giving to, and I'm giving to exactly. But this is something I, I wanna say for those of you who look like me, we have to be able to give money, give resources, give support, give love to our black and brown brothers and sisters without stepping in there and saying, this is what you need to do. It's more like, how can I help? And I'm your support staff. I, I do think that we have to work together as a team. I think that we all have gifts uh, to give of a variety of kinds. But at the end of the day, what we're really trying to do is build one human family in which everyone is valued in respect to their own individual uniqueness and in which the beauty of every human being is seen and valued and protected. And I think, so one of the things that we have to figure out is how do we open our hearts and our minds to a new kind of conversation in which we can truly become brothers. And where is that happening now? And what can we learn from that? So for example, the story I told you about the Bahia Vista School, where these kids speaking 27 different languages and, and now a kid comes out of the sixth grade, he speaks four languages, he's testing in the 90 percentile. He knows kids of all different countries and is able to get along with and solve problems with all, all, all different kinds of folks. 
you can imagine that that child is going to be advantaged for the rest of her or his life. Because no matter where they go, they're going to know how to build bridges of understanding and cooperation. They're going to know how to start friendships from scratch. Look, at that school, little kids, and I'm talking about eight-year-olds, are being trained in peer mediation to mediate disputes in the classroom and on the playground. So when, where there used to be a fist fight or an argument among kids, there are trained eight and nine-year-old peer mediators who have skills to intervene and find common ground and repair the breach in the relationship. They do stuff like metacognition, where they teach the kids how to manage their own thought processes. Well, these are six and seven and eight and nine-year-old kids who are thinking in terms of, gee, I need to shift mental gears because the activity has changed. That is the uh, creation of favorable conditions for competent, unity-building adults. And then this is something, actually, my own question. I want to hear how you answer this. But I, I'm on Facebook. I have friends of all flavors. And some of my friends on Facebook believe that there is no race problem with racism, that people are complaining that this, this is the work of anarchists, that, that basically race is not an issue in America. How would you answer someone like that? I mean, well, f first of all, all of us face the burden of facts. None of us, you know, I, I can't say something to you that is solely my opinion. You know, so when I told you that violence is down, um, I don't have one factual resource for that. I have several. When I told you that the world is changing from a social and economic development standpoint, I don't have one resource for that. I can point to data at the World Bank. I can point to data at the UN. I can point to data at the uh, Rosling Gapminder Institute. There are all kinds of data-based assessments that help us understand that, that this is the reality and this is not. So when you look at something like the idea that racism is somehow a fabrication by people who want something for nothing. There's simply no basis in fact in that. It, it turns out to be an unsupportable assertion. My first response, if, if I were in a conversation with somebody who said that, would be help me understand the reason that you believe that's true and show me the data, the evidence that supports your conclusion, because that evidence simply doesn't exist. Now, the, ev the evidence for discrimination in the classroom, for redlining when you're trying to buy a house, for job discrimination, that evidence exists aplenty. And so does the evidence that interracial cooperation at every level brings not only friendship and social and economic change, but it also brings social action. There's a lot of data to support that, but there isn't any data that supports the idea that people complain about discrimination but really have no basis for their complaint. I kind of take the same tack. You said it much more eloquently than maybe I did, but the one thing I will say as a Baha'i is I don't attack people. I put the data out there, and if they don't see it, it's okay. One thing I'm really happy about is having this message to remind me from the faith, from the recent letter from the House of Justice. Justice says that racism cannot be rooted out with conflict and contention and have that echoing in my ear every day to make mm -hmm. sure 
And I, I have a friend who just became a Baha'i. Um, I've known him for 45 years. I knew him uh, from the age of 10. He was the first black kid who moved into my neighborhood. We played baseball together and, and he's, he's struggling sometimes because it's, it's hard to see all these images in the news. And, and he's got, it's he was always a very popular, he was a very popular kid. And he's got a lot of friends and some of the friends have really let him down by just telling him kind of ignorant things about racism. It's, it's hard for him to hear it. Steve, you're bringing up a, another issue, and that is, uh, and, and this is something that I want to uh, put some emphasis on. There are a whole lot of poor white people who have been victimized as well, and their social circumstances are very challenging. And they may believe things that I don't share, but we have a common interest in the advancement of this country, and at some point we have to have a conversation that allows us to find common ground and build an understanding in which their family can be happy and prosper and mine can as well. And we can be a part of the same community because there's no advantage in me being right all by myself. I, I agree. And, and one other thing I was gonna say is this, this idea of not having conflict and contention is everything should be said with love. I try to go into every conversation with the goal of reconciliation. Well, first of all, we're, as Baha'is, we can't be politically partisan but someone's very adamant on this party or very adamant on that party, I tell them I'm not into politics. And then we talk the issues. And then even if they disagree with me, I put my points up there, but I try to find something we agree on. Yeah. I think one of the things that is characteristic of the media age uh, in which we live is we're all better talkers than we are listeners. And that one of the things we're gonna to have to cultivate is the patience to hear the story of, of other folks and to really try and understand what their reality is and why they feel and think the way they do. Uh, and I think that it, just being able to hear people out, I've had lots of conversations with members of the clan, with members of the Aryan nation where, and, and in fact, there is a substantial amount of data that indicates that if you have a conversation that is as concerned about listening as telling, that is even-handed and non-judgmental, that is patient, there can actually be a, a pretty significant and measurable change in the attitude of the opponents in a very short period of time, literally 45 minutes. So these, aren't, these are, are not impossible tasks but we ought to pay some attention to how we build understanding among people who, who don't believe what we believe. Well, one person I talk about all the time is Daryl Davis. I don't know if you've heard of his story. He's the musician, a black musician who has taken about 200 people out of the Klan by doing exactly that. Have you you've heard of his story? Yeah, yeah, I've read his story, yeah. And so anyway, I, I did get to talk to him. He's amazing. And well, that's the story of, of Zenona Clayton and Calvin Craig. Calvin Craig was the grand dragon of the Ku Klux Klan in Georgia. A uh, six foot four inch, blonde haired, blue eyed white man who's the grand dragon of the Klan. Zernona Clayton is about 4'10", and she was a black civil rights worker. And it, it, they developed a relationship through Job Corps in which she was the Job Corps director. He was put out of work by the closing of a factory and he had to go to Job Corps to get skills to get another job. Somewhere in that process, 
he made a public declaration of resignation from the clan, and he was the grand dragon for crying out loud. And it was the result of a series of conversations that Zernona Clayton and Calvin Craig had over a period of years, which stories have been written about it, a play was written about it, and so on. But this guy resigned as grand Dra imperial dragon of the, of the uh, Ku Klux Klan. That's, it sounds like it was a great play, but it would be a great movie. I'm texting my, my movie-making partner as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> if you saw the, uh, the play, it would knock your socks off. It's, it's an incredibly powerful play. And the high school kids who have performed it feel the importance of the story that a certain kind of conversation can be transformational. That is wonderful. I could talk to you all night, Bob, but we have to get to questions. Okay. I actually want to start the Q&A. I really like asking this one. So if people looked at each other's religion first instead of race, would there be less hate in the world or would there be more? Anything can be the basis of conflict. And conversely, lots of odd things can be the basis of getting together and agreement. But there has been, a, Devin, there's been a, a long and bloody history of interreligious violence. And the irony is every religion teaches the same thing. The fatherhood of God, the family of humankind, that we should be good parents and good brothers and sisters and reach out to other people and serve people and so forth. And yet religion has historically been the basis for uh, long, bloody and devastating wars. So I think that if we took the essence of the spiritual teachings of the religions and we asked ourselves, am I really living those teachings? Am I being a brother to everyone I encounter? Am I a servant to the community? Is my heart free of prejudice and is, it, is my mind open? Am I more preoccupied with service than I am self-enrichment? You know, if, if we did those kinds of things, then it wouldn't matter whether we were a Christian, a Muslim, or a Baha'i, or a Jew, or you know, a Buddhist, or what, whatever you were. It, you would see a different spirit of cooperation and a different social dynamic. I agree, and those are questions we should definitely ask ourselves. Bob, I can't thank you enough. Deb, uh, I think we all learned a tremendous amount from you, Bob. I learn a lot from you every time I hear you talk. So you've given me a lot to think about. So thank you so much, and I'm sure the rest of us feel the same way. Thank, thank you so much.